Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Mythgard Academy's first class on Dune. Uh, we are beginning a new book tonight, which I'm uh, very excited about. Um, uh, many of you, of course, know me as the Tolkien Professor, and Tolkien, of course, has been my favorite author since I was a, a little child. But um, I've been a huge fan of this book for a long time. Um, in fact, I'd like to give a shout-out at the very beginning to my 11th grade English teacher, Mrs. Edgar. I'm not sure if she still lives around here anymore. I've recently moved back to the town uh, near, right next door to the town where I went to high school. Um, I'm not sure if she's still around here or not. But in any case, um, we read Dune. Uh, I had, I had, an, I had an, an enlightened high school English teacher who added Dune to the, to the high school curriculum. Coolest English class I ever took. Um, and it was really her class... In teaching this book, and also, I would add, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Those were the two books um, that we did in her class, which really kind of opened my eyes to the reading of literature. Uh, that was when the sort of the serious study of literature and the kind of, cr of close reading that I've spent pretty much the rest of my career... Uh, you know, really just kind of opened up to me, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sort of the rest is history. So Dune has always had a really sort of special part in uh, in, in my life and in my memory, uh, looking back at that time, and I have read it with, gr I have re read it and reread it many times with very great pleasure, and I am very excited uh, to talk to you guys about it tonight, um, and for the next several uh, uh, weeks to come. Um so uh so I'm very excited to get going before uh before we immerse ourselves completely in the book however I want to I do want to give a little bit of an introduction uh to this class and what we're doing because I know that there are many people here who have not been with us in our other classes who are not part I know that there are many names that I do recognize but then a bunch that I don't so I want to make sure that we're all sort of on the same uh, we're all sort of starting off at the same level and everybody knows what's going on here. Um, I'm going to give a, a little introduction to the Mythgard Academy and what this is. This, of course, is a free class. Um, it, it's open to everybody and everyone is invited not only to attend live if they can... Okay, okay, well, all right, everybody in the world can't attend live. Only the first hundred people to the session can attend live. Unfortunately, that's the most that we can accommodate here uh, in our current subscription uh, to go to meeting. So um, but the first hundred can attend live, but everybody can uh, can get the recording. Um, we will be posting video and audio recordings of these sessions. They will be downloadable in three different places. One on the homepage of the class, which is on the Mythgard website, uh, mythgard.org. Um, go to the Mythgard Academy link on the on the, uh, the 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 quick links on the side or to the Mythgard Academy tab up on the top and you can get to the dune page um, and on that page you will find not only the reading schedule for the rest of the class but you will also find the links for all of these sessions as well as the recordings when they're completed and posted which should be soon uh, sometime in the next uh, 24 hours ish uh, those uh, will be posted after class so anybody is welcome to you know the, to, to, to download and, and and you know share around the uh, the video and audio recordings of this class you can also get them through our RSS feed we have two podcast um, uh, we, we have two podcasts on iTunes U for the Mythgard Academy, a separate one for the video files and a separate one for the audio files. It's the same material, just depending on your format. If you're somebody who likes to watch the class uh, on you know, your iPad or something, then you know, you go ahead and subscribe to the video feed. If you just like to listen to it while you drive or something, then you can, uh, then you can download the audio feed. 
our class materials are also available on iTunes U if you uh, if you prefer that format. The iTunes U uh, uh, course format is pretty cool, so you can get things sort of pushed directly to you that way also. Anyhow, that's uh, um, that's that's how the class works. These live sessions are going to be, I hope, uh, going to be very participatory. I always enjoy the comments that you guys make and the questions that you ask. There will be a bunch of times that I'm going to be asking you questions. Be really interested to hear what you have to say about particular passages or ideas in the text. So um, uh, please do uh, make use of the little the the questions box on your control panel. There, um, I will see those in real time. They're not going to be uh, the you know th- those comments aren't going to be visible to everybody. This is not a uh, this is not a a a chat window a student to student chat window. This is just the way for you to be communicating with me directly during the class. If you do want to to uh, engage in a student to student chat and to talk to other people here involved in the class. You can do that. Go to the Dune page uh, that I mentioned on the Mythgard Academy site, and you will be able to um, you will be able to get uh, uh, there's a there's a, a chat link there um, on the uh, on the on the on the page in the bottom right hand corner. Um, so yeah, I invite you to go there and join in. That's totally not required, but I know that some people like to be able to talk with others during class, and that, that way you can do that. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and, and uh, it's all good. So anyhow, um, that's so that's how the 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 in class uh, uh, sort of discussion and participation is going to work. Uh, Jordan uh, Sunderland has asked me to make sure that I let everybody know the odds on whether or not we cover all the slides each week. Yeah, you, if you want to be involved in the uh, in the in the weekly betting pool of uh, how how many slides I'm going to get through in a given week, uh, how I tend to do these classes uh, is I you know I, I and as I said I really love close reading um, rather than just kind of talking talking in very general terms about the text. I really like to dig into particular passages and really look closely at what's going on. So, you know, I've picked out a bunch of passages. I'm not going to tell you how many because then I'll be even more embarrassed if I don't cover that many. Uh, and uh, and then, But, you know, often we kind of get into talking about them and uh, uh, I... Um, uh, I don't always get through everything that I plan to do. Uh, Carissa says the odds are not in my favor, which is which is really which is really true. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so we're uh, 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 the, if you want to be involved in that betting process, again, go to the chat window and you guys can uh, you you guys can sort that out. I don't want to know. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, Tom, I don't set the over under in any given week. Uh, I think that's Ed's job. So uh, I think I again go to the chat window and you can uh, you can do it. exactly Jordan, just like Han Solo. Never tell me the odds because sometimes I surprise people and get through like eighteen. That happened before. This has occurred, not often, but it but it but it has happened. I also do want to make sure people know about uh, the election process, the way that um, the books are chosen, the books that we have done in the Mythgard Academy for this past year, um, is by our electorate. Um, the Mythgard Academy, uh, these are free classes, as I've said, but of course they're not free to put on, they're just free for you to take. They are funded by the very generous donations of our supporters who supported our, our fundraising campaign last year. We did an Indiegogo campaign uh, and where we raised $24,000. It was just fantastic. Um, and we raised enough to do Mythgard Academy classes for the whole year and provide free downloads for everybody, and that's been really great. Um, we've done a lot over the course of this year. Um, the people who supported the campaign 
are able to, uh, you know, those who, who donated $25 or more, I'll get at least one vote, some more. Um, in the electoral process, others, uh, those who donated $100 or more, are officially on the Council of the Wise uh, and uh, are able to nominate and, and uh, vote on the initial pool of finalists, which then goes out to the electorate as a whole. I am not involved in this process, though I'm always an interested spectator uh, in this process. Um, Tolkien fans have been not a huge surprise. They they were very well represented uh, in the first campaign, and so our first year's classes have been unshockingly Tolkien-heavy, which has been fun. Um, the books that we've done over this past year, of course, are looking back on the year. We're coming close to the end of the first year now. In fact, the Dune class is going to be our last class in this first round. Um, but uh, but anyway, we you know so we did we started with uh, uh, with the two towers class. I had done the Fellowship of the Ring before, so we started with the two towers class. That was the sort of pilot class, and the last class we did that wasn't elected. That was just chosen by me. The first class, we, the everybody elected to complete the the Lord of the Rings and do the Return of the King. Um, we did unfinished tales. Uh, Tolkien's Unfinished Tales. Then we did Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, and we did The Book of Lost Tales, the first volume of the History of Middle-Earth series, um, and now we're doing uh, Frank Herbert's Dune. So uh, it's been... It's been really great. I love to go through these books slowly. This is a great opportunity for us to sort of read, uh, you know, a great book together and, and, you know, sort of really talk it through. And I know that I have uh, found these classes wonderfully enriching. I have really emerged from each one of these classes with a great new appreciation for the book that we've been talking about. Um, you know, for me, I loved the Book of Lost Tales class. I um you know I really enjoyed the Lord of the Rings series of course but uh but I think the Ender's Game class and the uh, uh and the Unfinished Tales class were for me the two which were most sort of mind blowing I, uh, I I I always liked Ender's Game but I came away with a with a with a a, a much a much richer uh, sort of understanding of that book after going through it with you guys, um, and Unfinished Tales was was really fun. That was the uh, that was the, that was the first time I've ever really sat down. You know, I'd read it several times before, but it was the first time I ever really sat down and worked my way very carefully through that book, and I found it uh, I found it really fascinating, and it opened up a lot of things that I hadn't thought about before. Um, uh, Neo and Carissa are asking about sort of you know marveling on the fact that it's been a full year and asking about the next campaign. The next campaign is going to start soon. We are going to do another fundraising campaign because we'd like to continue this for another year. So there'll be opportunities to get involved as we move forward. If you know there's a book that you would like to see us do a course like this, if you want to be involved in a you know to in reading our way through uh, a different book. Um, by all means, uh, get involved. That'll be great. Um, we will. D- don't worry. We'll inform you when the next campaign is coming. <laughs> We're not going to keep it a secret. Um, but it is. It's. It's going to be coming up in the next few months. It's. It's not going to be instantly, but it's going to be um, probably in the beginning of the fall. Is. Is around what we're. What we're thinking at this point. So. Um, we'll definitely. Definitely keep you informed uh, of that. Um, uh, I also want to just mention, I'll come back and talk about them a little bit more later on. Of course, the Mythgard Academy is only one of a couple things that the Mythgard Institute does. We also, of course, are, you know, run our master's degree program in language and literature. Um, and our fall classes are open for registration right now. I invite you to take a look at those. Um, those are much 
sort of more in-depth and formal courses than these. This is a, you know, sort of a read-through of one book together, um, which is which is really great. But it's not the same as a as a as sort of a full class. Um, if you look at the classes that we are, that we're offering, we're offering three classes this fall. I'm doing a class on Lewis and Tolkien. Um, where we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be comparing the fiction of of of, of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, looking at sort of the, the 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 places where they overlap, and really looking carefully at at the way in which those two authors really examine some of the same questions and some of the similarities and differences of their approach uh, to 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 writing and their sort of the, their their approach to answering certain questions. Um, and I think that I think it's I think it's it's uh, it's really fun to do that. Uh, we have a new class being taught uh, by Douglas Anderson, the editor uh, of the Annotated Hobbit, who is doing a class called The Roots of the Mountain. It's a uh, fantasy literature before Tolkien, looking at um, all of the fantasy work which influenced Tolkien's thinking. Um, there was, of course, a lot of fantasy prior to, to Tolkien, though not that many people read it anymore. But it's really fascinating stuff. So if you've ever wondered about you know the works that inspired Tolkien. Uh, you know, again, and these are not the medieval works. Of course, a lot of people know about the medieval works like Beowulf and stuff that inspired Tolkien. Um, but here we're talking about we're talking about the fantasy writers of the previous couple generations to him primarily. Um, and then our third class, one of particular interest, of course, and uh, relevant to this class, is Amy Sturgis's science fiction class. She's doing a two-semester historical survey of the science fiction genre from the modern... So the first semester is going to be in the fall, from the modern roots through the golden age uh, of science fiction. Um, Dune is actually going to be covered in her class. Um, it is it, Amy is the, is, is, is the master of the science fiction genre. Uh, the way that she is able to contextualize what um, you know, sort of how the genre has grown, and looking at sort of the, at, 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 you know, what these, what we can see in these books, and the growth of the genre, and uh, you know, the the different interests that are that are that, that are reflected, the way that she can contextualize stuff is really fascinating. She is just an excellent, excellent um, uh, uh, teacher. But um, uh, but anyway, uh, I. That is a class that I'm going to be referring you to a lot because Amy is the real expert with science fiction. I'm a lover of this book uh, and uh, a very engaged reader uh, of it, but I am not an expert uh, in science fiction. Amy is the expert, and uh, from her you will learn a very, very great deal. Um, so anyway, that's um, uh, that's that's again I recommend those to you uh, to, to sort of look at those. Go to MythGuard.org and look at, uh, at, our, at our current classes and you can see more. I'd be happy to answer questions about those when we get towards the end. But let's move on to Dune. So let me establish first the ground rules of our discussion. Um, Kristen Hauk was teasing me about seven minutes ago, saying that she already predicted we're going to spend at least half the class on the quote at the opening of chapter one. Uh, see, Kristen, no, we're going to spend half the class before I even get to slide one. That's how I really, you know, uh, 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 sort of spike my own uh, wheel before we before we even get on. But but it's okay. It's, it's important. I'm going to. So I, I want to establish sort of the ground rules. And the, the number one ground rule of our discussions on Dune is that I want to be talking about this book. Only that is, I know that there are you know many other Dune books that have been written which came from this, and you know that there's this whole sort of you know Dune world and and and, and mythos that sort of grew up. And I mean, we're not going to talk about that. We're this is this class going to be on this book on book one, and there are two reasons why I want to focus our discussion in this class on the first book only. 
first is that this is part of the general approach of how I like to do things in this whole series. Um, I want to do a close reading of this book, not a sort of a general discussion about sort of Dune stuff in general, but a reading of this book. Um, one reason for that is that I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Again, not everybody who's attending the class has read all the other books, so, you know, it's 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 going to be, you know, I, I want to make sure that we're all able to sort of participate in this. And in addition, it's also kind of easy to get, um, to get sort of sloppy. Um, and what I mean by that is, when you start importing stuff from later books, it's pretty clear to me that you know Frank Herbert's thinking about these about the you know the, the stories and the characters and the world really develops over time and i think I'll, with a lot of things if we sort of take and import elements from later books into a discussion of the first book i think that we're not really doing justice to the first book by doing that um it it's 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 interesting to think about, especially in the context... If we were to be discussing one of the later books, it would be interesting to think back to the first book um, and how some of the later changes kind of go back and retroactively shift some things uh, from the first book or sort of further inform things which are not clearly defined in the first book. Um, but that's not a first book issue. That's a later book issue. And that's why I don't really... That, that's what I mean by getting sloppy. Um, it's... Um, it's kind of like, you know, again, last semester we read the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1, by Tolkien. Last semester, I say. In our last session, in our last class, we don't really follow semesters. The last book that we did was Book of Lost Tales, Part 1. And that was, of course, the very first drafting, uh, really, uh, the, rather the first time that Tolkien was trying to bring together all of these stories that he was beginning to write, this, this, this mythology that he was putting together, the stuff which much later on, like 60 years later, was eventually going to get published as the Silmarillion. Um, but it's sloppy to be Im just sort of importing stuff from the later Silmarillion into the Book of Lost Tales. We have to kind of, you know, we talked about this a lot during the class, we have to kind of keep our focus on what's there in the Book of Lost Tales um, because it, it has yet to grow into those other things. And if we just sort of apply what we know from the later writings back into those earlier writings, we lose our focus on the early writings. We don't, we, we, we're no longer really focused, paying attention uh, to what's really there. Um, so... So that's um, that's that's one of the main reasons, as I said, as you know, sort of general principles why I want to make sure that we keep our focus on on the first book. Um, I want to take this book on its own terms, as I tend to do. The second reason why I want to talk about the first Dune book only is that I dislike the other Dune books quite a lot, <laughs> actually. In fact, I will have to admit that I only got through the next two. Um, before I stopped, um, and I've never been tempted uh, to go back and read more. Um, I think, as I've said, I think that this first book is a luminous masterpiece. I think that Dune is one of the most brilliant books written in the 20th century. Um, I could not say the same thing about the books that follow it. Um, I just don't think they measure up. Uh, and, and just to give a very brief explanation of the way in which I don't think they measure up. One of the things that I find so powerful, um, so mythic in Tolkien's sense, um, uh, about Dune is, is, is this sort of the rich suggestiveness of it. There are so many things in this book that are not explored that really just... I mean, even just... even 
to the ending. And uh, I'm not going to talk about the ending on the first day, but um, where this book ends, I find fascinating. And there is so much, you know, the question of the future and what's coming in the future is a central concern of this book. And yet at the end of the book, we're left sort of speculating, right? We're left to sort of look forward ourselves and think about what is going to happen? Where are we going next? And I find that when um, when we actually see that, you know, when we start to get what happens in the future, I just find it doesn't measure up. It, it, it sort of falls flat. Um, it, it's it's it is much much less interesting to actually see that future unfold than it is to see it from the vantage point of this first book. Um, uh, I'm not saying that, uh, uh, I mean, in fact, I, I, I disliked them in that way so much that, again, I, I sort of actively distanced myself from them. Like I said, I, not only am I, have I not been tempted to go back and read more, I actively don't want to go back and read more um, because I want to sort of preserve my experience of, of the first book, uh, which, I, which I find so great. Um, uh, it's, I'm not saying that all the way to Dune books are really awful. I'm just saying the first step's a doozy. You know, I mean, the drop-off, because the threshold is set so high. Um, and on the one hand, I really, really understand and can fully respect the impulse to go on and write more Dune books, right? One of the ways in which this book is so successful is how immersive the experience is, how compelling this world is. Um, and it's, 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 it's rich, and it's compelling, and it's fascinating, and that it would have a kind of life of its own um, makes perfect sense to me. That seems to me almost, um, it seems to me almost inescapable. But that, that that would happen, that it would go on, that there would be this impulse to move. But, uh, but I don't think the execution was really there. Uh, Amber Nelson makes a really interesting parallel. Um, she says it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like the second and third Matrix movies. Amber, that's an excellent parallel, and I absolutely agree. The second and third Matrix movies were awful. The first Matrix film is brilliant. One of my favorite films ever. Um, it is just excellent. And then, as you say, Amber, the way that the last scene of the Matrix, right, sort of pushes you towards the future and towards imagining what is going to be achieved in the future, seeing the actual achievement of it cannot possibly be as rich as the suggestiveness of the end of that film. Um, it's a theoretic... I think it's a theoretically impossible task. Um, and unshockingly, fails! Right? And I do think that Dune, Dune seems to me fairly, uh, fairly similar in that way. Um, but... Uh, Anyway, so, um, uh, this is, uh, my explanation for why. <laughs> so, that means, when we're, you know, if you do know, and if, if you do happen to be one of those people who know and love the other, and I've met them, you know, I've met some people like that who both know and love the rest of the Dune books also, in addition to the first one, um, uh, you're not going to be able to lure me into discussions or sort of, you know, bringing in stuff from the later books. And don't go if I say, like, oh, this thing is not really clarified. We don't really know much about this. I don't want to hear, like, oh, we learn a lot more about that in book three. Yeah, I'm sure we do, but that's, uh, um, that's not, <laughs> that is not of interest to me, uh, in this, uh, in this discussion. Uh, so anyway, um, 
That's, uh, that's, that's, well, yeah, Patrick Summer says, sometimes spelling out the details spoils it. Leaving something to the imagination can be the better part of valor. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I really think the quality of the untold stories that lie behind the story that is told is one of the things that gives a story great richness. It's one of the things that Tolkien does supremely well in The Lord of the Rings. It's one of the things that Herbert does supremely well in Dune. Um, but then he goes on and gives us more. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, okay. Um, let's see, Neil asks, did I ever look at the Dune Encyclopedia? Nope. Never did. Never did. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Kevin disagrees with me. I knew there would be at least one person who really likes the sequels. That's great. That's fine. I totally respect that. I'd be interested to hear that. Uh, maybe, uh, uh, maybe at some point. In fact, Kevin, we do. Um, you know, every year, Mythgard hosts a, a science fiction and fantasy fan academic conference uh, called MythMoot, and uh, we have people present papers uh, at this at this conference. Um, uh, uh, Kevin, I dare you. <laughs> I dare you. Write a paper. Write a paper explaining. Deliver a paper, 15 to 20 minutes, explaining uh, why you, the, the, the title... Okay, maybe this won't work as the official title of the paper, but you can, you can be, your, your, your paper can be Why the Dune Sequels Don't Suck by Kevin Morgan. That's, and that would be an awesome paper, <laughs> paper topic, and, uh, uh, and, and, and I, I, I would genuinely like to hear it. I, w- I really want to, be, I don't like disliking books. I love to be talked into enjoying books that I didn't like before. Uh, so by all means, by all means, talk me into it. Um, I'll be very happy. Um, okay. Okay. Um, uh, uh, let's, d- I have an idea. Want to talk about the book? Let's let's go on and do slide one before Christian starts making fun of me again. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, my approach, what I love to do, you know, when we're kind of plunging into a new world like this, is to you know start to start to be paying attention, noticing patterns that start to emerge, trying to kind of get inside the vocabulary of a book and see its shape. You may remember when we. Um, when we were looking at the beginning of Ender's Game, one of the first things that we were really focusing on are those those terms that kept kind of jumping out. Um, the way in which we were getting, you know, the with the buggers and the astronauts, right? And the way that we had this juxtaposition with Ender looking through the bugger mask, and you know, that, that, that question about sort of putting the buggers and the humans side by side and thinking about the two of them together. We're asked to do that a lot at the beginning of that story. We, we kept having that language about Ender being a tool and, you know, who's Who's who is the you know who's a tool and who's who's choosing their own course and 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 all that stuff, um, you know those were the terms that that really that I found really compelling there at the beginning of that story and which really sort of set us up to notice a lot of things later on um, if we paid attention to them in the early chapters. Um, some of the vocabulary that really jumps out at me here at the beginning of Dune is um, the. Um, Oh, I actually, hang on. I want to I answer Doug's question first before I start. Um, Doug says, how many times do I refer to the appendix each time I read this? Zero. 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 Um, I, I, I do go back afterwards. I like to look through the appendix at the end, but I never look at the appendix while I'm reading. Um, uh, to me, 
the strangeness of some of these things is one of the is 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 now of course part of that is because I've read this book a whole bunch of times, so I don't need to look at most of the things anymore. But um, you can. I'm not trying to discourage. If you don't know the book, you 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 can. But I actually am not sure. I really recommend it on your first read through. Um, it's kind of better just to just to sort of immerse yourself. You'll get most of it as we go along later. Um, to me, the appendix is almost like the first step of that sort of further information that I'm not 100% sure I needed. Um, but um, but anyway, good. Erica has pointed out an excellent term, um, which is clearly an important phrase, um, which is obviously of great significance here at the beginning, and that is terrible purpose, Paul's terrible purpose. Um, we're going to come back to that. Uh, uh, certainly. That's one of the two things that I, too, Erica, was really focused on um, in these first few chapters. But the first thing um, is thinking about the Gom Jabbar and, in, and this, 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 this test, this question of uh, being uh, of human versus animal um, and what's at stake there. Look at the description of the test as the Reverend Mother explains it. She bent close, lowered her voice almost to a whisper. You will feel pain in this hand within the box. Pain. But withdraw the hand and I'll touch your neck with my gum jabbar. The death, the death so swift, it's like the fall of the headsman's axe. Withdraw your hand and the, jum, and the gum jabbar takes you. Understand? What's in the box? Pain. He felt increased tingling in his hand, pressed his lips tightly together. How could this be a test? He wondered. The tingling became an itch. The old woman said, You have heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap? That's There's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. The itch became the faintest burning. Why are you doing this? he demanded. To determine if you're human, be silent. Now, what's the answer to his question? How could this be how could this be a test? How could this be a test? What is being tested here? Um uh, Yeah, Sean Hyde is saying I skipped over the reference to the many words for poison rather than many different kinds of poison uh that they that they use. True, it's true, yes, yes, that that is an interesting scene certainly, uh, to tell us about their society. We get there's so many things that we gain. I think that Herbert does a brilliant job of one of the things which is just the the primary challenge that 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 presents itself to any writer of imaginative literature, any science fiction or fantasy writer, is how do you bring your readers into your imaginative world, right? How do you how do you how do you escort them into that secondary world? How do you introduce it to them in a way that's going to be compelling, that's neither going to be too confusing nor too didactic? There are lots of ways to screw that up. And I think that uh, I think that, that Herbert does it fantastically well. Um, but um, let me um, let me get back to this. How could this be a test? What exactly? What What are the terms of the test here exactly? And I, and I, what's the what's the significance of this? Um, good, as Sarah Lagarde points out, um, you know the pain is 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 a hinge. She says it it, it is the axis of the test, right? Um, the test is his reaction to it, 
right? Good Erica is pointing out that, you know, human versus animal that, that she seems to be pointing at. Um, you know, the if Paul is human, he should be able to override his animal instincts, right? There seems to be that 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 instinctive reaction, right, to withdraw your hand from pain. Um, that, that's a really, really deep um, instinct. It's a, in fact, it's it's beyond instinct to reflex, right? It's like a spinal reflex. It doesn't even reach your brain, right? Your spinal cord is only required to, to pull your hand away from pain, um, and yet a human, says the the Reverend Mother, can overcome that, right? Um, humans don't do that. Um, Peter, uh, Peter, how do you say your name? Ribsky, is that right, Peter? Um, uh, says uh, it's a test of mental strength, of mental discipline, whether the mind rules the body or the other way around. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. That that the division between mind and body, or let me say it a different way, the relationship between mind and body is, I think, an, is something that is of great interest in this story. We're going to come back to this a little bit later on when we look at sort of two different examples that we get of the sort of peculiar relations that are possible within this world between mind and body. Um, we see one of them in the Bene Gesserit. We see the other in the Mentat, right? Um, so, so I, Peter, I, I, I agree. I think that those terms are really, really important. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nancy makes a really interesting observation. Nancy Fosberg says, one thing I noticed in this scene is that we have the limited third-person narration, but it skipped from character to character. That was strange to me, especially with the Reverend Mother, because she seemed so mysterious otherwise. Yes, the, the point of view of this text, of the whole story, really doesn't quite give you a place to rest. It's not quite omniscient. Right, but it does sort of float around. Sometimes we're seeing into someone, someone else's. Head. We're not always looking into everybody's head, right? But the point of view kind of shifts around. It's one of the things that um, is well. It's tricky again because we'll we'll be we'll be given sort of unexpected insight into what some what what a particular character is thinking when we weren't necessarily expecting that. And that in that that really requires us sometimes to do some pretty abrupt shifting of our own um perspectives, of our own recognition of things. Um Okay, good, good. Um Yes, excellent. Uh several people um um Yeah, good. Jonathan is pointing out you know uh Jonathan Spencer is pointing out her comment about the animal trick, right? There's an animal trick. It's suggested to be human is to endure pain for the benefit of others. Yes, that's exactly what she says, right? It's not just a question of mind over body. That's an important element of it, right? But it seems to be, to her, there's more than just that. It's also about the motivations, right? It's not just, are you going to allow... Uh, you know, your impulses to rule, or are you going to allow your reason to rule? That's at stake, but it's also about the why, right? The animal who gnaws off its own leg um, that is caught in a trap is thinking only, you know, if it is really thinking in this, in the, you know, in the, in the same way, certainly not reasoning exactly. Um, but what they're doing is trying to escape at, at, at any cost, right? Preserve your own life no matter what. That's the only principle involved in the animal that is gnawing off its own leg in the trap, right? The human, according to her characterization here, um, is not only able to rise above the pain, 
um, but is able to do something, and as Jonathan points out, to do something to remove a threat to his kind, she says. Right now, notice she doesn't say the human would escape the trap, the animal would not. Right, the animal will pair will gnaw off its own limb and probably bleed to death, whereas the human will find a way to survive. That's not. Um, uh, that's not what she describes. There's no indication, there's no guarantee that the human in question in her illustration lives, right? The key is that it kills the trapper, right? That, that is what determines that. So we see this this sort of, well, I don't want to call it a paradox, that might be kind of strong, but an irony anyway, right? Where there is that element, Jonathan, as you point out, of self-sacrifice, right? Of, of, of thinking of the bigger picture, thinking beyond yourself and your own immediate survival, thinking about the survival of your kind instead but it's also about killing, right? The animal um, is just going to try to get away, no matter what. But the human is going to lie in wait and murder the trapper, right? That 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 act of carefully disciplined, pre uh, uh, pre planned murder, uh, you know, premeditated murder. That's 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 pretty much the characteristic of human beings. So we see it, it's really kind of two sided in that way, right? There's there's something a little ominous about her uh, definition of the humans there. Um, uh, in that way. Um, yeah, good, good. Noelle points out that, uh, she says it's interesting that, it, that in, in Herbert's world, death is still the ultimate fear. Yeah, there, 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 there does seem to be... Oh, that's... Yeah, that question about death and what is beyond death is, is like, well, I think we'll come back to that. We're going we're gonna to be looking at that in various places. Um, yeah, good. And by the way, I know there are uh, there are many people who have joined us here tonight. We have a, a good uh, turnout with 76 of your, well, that's counting me, so 75 of you here with me today. It means, I, I will apologize, I'm not going to be able to get to everybody's comments uh, today. I'm kind of uh, picking through almost randomly here, so I apologize if I don't get, uh, don't, don't get to your comment. Um, but... Uh, um, so anyway, I, I, I know I'm not going to be able to get uh, uh, to get through it. Gerald Michael asks, I wonder if she's telling the whole truth about the test. You kind of get the feeling that uh, uh, the Reverend Mother is not telling everything about anything, really. Um, and I see that Sharon Powell, as usually, is anticipating me. Sharon has this uh, wonderful way of being... Uh, Two steps ahead of my own thinking when I'm uh, when I'm uh, walking through stuff. Sharon, I'll come back to you in a minute. Um, um, Mike Thurway, uh, style time. Mike is pointing out the significance of the word trick. He's, you know, what is an animal trick? Um, you could say, and I, I, I that is a conspicuous word, isn't it? Um, uh, it's an animal kind of trick, right? Um, I mean, it's not a trick exactly, right? But it's, I mean, in fact, there, there, there's, there's a further kind of irony to that. An animal trick is like a trick you teach an animal to do, right? Something an animal has learned. This isn't something an animal learns. It's something an animal does absolutely by instinct and without premeditation or training, right? Um, but there's a kind of a slighting way that she's, you know, this is like a trick that an animal does, right? I don't know. This is what a human would do. And it's, again, and, and it's all about the meditation, the contemplation, the consideration of costs and benefits. You might be trapped. There might be no way for you to escape. But you can still bring something out of this, right? The death of the nasty trapper. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tom Hillman says it's contemptuous. That, too, is, I think, um, really an accurate characterization of the tone there. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yes. Brian made a really good observation about the third-person narrative. Hang on to that, Brian. Bring that up again later on. I'm not going to talk about that right now, because it goes too far into what happens later on in the book, and I don't want to get there yet. Um, but, Brian, what you just the comment you just made, store that away. Make that again later on, and we'll talk about that. Because um, I think it's a really cool observation. Um, one of the things I think is... One of the reasons why I, uh, I really wanted to, um, <clears throat> um, to, to, to focus on this issue, this issue of not only because the Gomjabar, of course, is, is this really, you know, crucial scene um, at the beginning of the book, but I think it's it's uh, there's a way in which it, it has some, um, some, some clear thematic relevance to a whole bunch of things that we see going on um, in this story. It helps us to kind of open up a bunch of other things. Notice, for instance, the way in which this, for one thing, gives us an insight into the whole Bene Gesserit Thing. There's a, a real intellectual way to describe it. The whole Bene Gesserit approach, right? The whole Bene Gesserit concept. Um, look at his training. This is uh, the first time we see any evidence of Bene Gesserit training and what that means. We know that he's being trained in the deep ways and whatever that means. We don't really know yet. Um, but the first time we see him going going through his Bene Gesserit lessons, right? This is, uh, notice the terms that we get here. Um, tell me, as I read... Tell me what uh, the stuff that really jumps out at you here, the sort of the, the patterns that you notice here. Paul sensed his own tensions. Remember, this is right after he's been overhearing the Reverend Mother talking to his mom, right, as peeking into his room. Paul sensed his own tensions, decided to practice one of the mind-body lessons his mother had taught him. Three quick breaths triggered the responses. He fell into the floating awareness, focusing the consciousness, aortal dilation, avoiding the unfocused mechanism of consciousness, to be conscious by choice, blood-enriched and swift-flooding the overload regions. One does not obtain food safety freedom by instinct alone. Animal consciousness does not extend beyond the given moment, nor into the idea that its victims may become extinct. The animal destroys and does not produce. The animal pleasures animal pleasures remain close to sensational levels and avoid the perceptual. The human requires a background grid through which to see his universe. Focused consciousness by choice. This forms your grid. Bodily integrity follows nerve blood flow according to the deepest awareness of cell needs. All things, cells, beings are impermanent. Strive for flow permanence within. Over and over and over within Paul's floating awareness, the lesson rolled. All right. What'd you notice? Um... Yeah, Brian Fetterini makes a great point. He says, I'd be really interested to return to this passage once Paul develops as a more active character and how ironic lessons in this experience become. I agree. I think this is a passage which does get really fascinating when we look back on it um, later on in the book. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay. Um uh, Ian says, uh, "Is it now, now day? Is that the is that is that the correct pronunciation of your last name?" Um, manner of consciousness seems to be a distinguishing factor between animal and human. Um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Manner of consciousness, right? Uh, to be conscious by choice, avoiding the unfocused mechanism of consciousness, right? Not to just let consciousness happen to you, right? But to be conscious by choice. There's this self-awareness, right? Um, this awareness of the entire self, this, this like, meta-consciousness, right? To be conscious of consciousness, um, which is part of the, me- of the, of the mind-body lessons of the Bene Gesserit. Um, and which do seem to be connected. I mean, we no, you'll notice obviously the, the the references to animal and human throughout this, right? We can see that this basic concept, this basic division between the animal and the human, is obviously one of the ways in which the Bene Gesserit think, right? One of the ways in which they categorize things. One of one of the uh, again to use their words, one of the background grids through which they see the universe. Um, uh, yeah, notice Carissa points out that we get. Uh, uh, control on the molecular level, yes. Um, the relationship between mind and body goes beyond simply, you know, opening your mind to larger concepts, right? Or, you know, being aware of things that you normally take for granted. Obviously, there's much more to it than that, right? It is a, there is, there is, an, a, there is an, an intensive awareness of the body involved in this, which is not normal, which is not an animal thing. Right, uh, to be human is to be. Notice, like aortal dilation. Right, I mean, okay, let's all let's all dilate our aortas now. Right, I mean, it's, it's not something you normally can do. Um, even these unconscious processes, even the cellular processes, as as you know, he's uh, as we get there at the end of the passage, um, are things which sort of come under this under the awareness um, of the Bene Gesserit in this in this in this process. Um, yeah, Brandon Young says, humans are aware that they are aware. Um, yeah, and Doug Overmeyer adds, animals don't have a worldview. Yeah, they don't have a background grid through which they see the universe. They see only the things around them. They don't have any context into which to fit those things, right? Um, animal consciousness does not extend beyond the given moment, nor into the idea that its victims may become extinct. It would never occur to, uh, to a, a predator to... Carefully culti- you know, to carefully cultivate its prey so that it doesn't run out of prey, right? It can't think that far ahead. It thinks only in the moment. I hunger. I want that thing, and so it takes it, right? Um, whereas a human thinks differently. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kevin says, uh, apparently, I don't do yoga. No, I don't, and uh, if, uh, if, uh, if your yoga teaches you to dilate your aorta and, uh, um, you know, gain the deepest awareness of cell needs, um, then my hat's off to your yoga instructor. Um, but, uh, yeah, Carolyn is asking about that, that interesting little constellation there, food safety freedom, right? And uh, the uh, food safety freedom... Uh, you know, uh, little, little constellation seems to be really sort of the the essence of animal desire, right? That seems to be a way to kind of bring together in this really simplistic way what is the goal of the animal life, the animal outlook, right? You see food, you know, you want safety, you know, you want to avoid fear, you want to get food, um, and you desire freedom. You don't want to be trapped, right? So animals want to escape if they're trapped. Um, they want to be secure, that is, they don't want to be afraid, and they want food. Um, these are the things that um, um, 
that uh, that 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 animals want, and I think the way that they're br- they're brought together, like they're just hyphenated, food safety, freedom, right? Um, to make us to 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 use a single word to categorize all of those things, that would be a human thing, right? Um, animals don't even process that far. They don't even recognize that the things that they want all fit into one. They just want food safety, freedom, right? It's a it's a just a kind of a mishmash thing to them. Um, yeah, yeah. Doug Overmeyer is also anticipating me. Wait for it, wait for it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Now, the other thing that I would point out um, is um, the... Humans require a background grid through which to see his universe. There seems to me a um, the hint of a limitation there. That is, it doesn't just say humans see the universe through a background grid, right? Focused consciousness by choice, this forms your grid. Rather, um, they, the human requires a background grid through which to see his universe. Where does your background grid come from? What if your background grid is wrong? Um, could you be misled by your background grid? Right? What if the pattern into which you are attempting to fit the universe doesn't actually fit? Um, there, it gets, there strikes me as sort of the hint of a limitation, or at least the uh, opportunity... To be human is not simply to be above animals, right? It is, in a sense, consciousness above animals, and yet um, it is not the same thing as, you know, the, the, the difference between sensation and perception does not necessarily mean, uh, and I think that, that that distinction, by the way, is a really crucial one, um, to, to sense versus to perceive. It's kind of like the difference between hearing and listening, right? Um, are, you, are you merely uh, receiving stimuli, or are you really examining things? Are you making observations? Are you thinking about things? Are you are you formulating a background grid from the things that you see? Are you fitting the things into your background grid? Are you using the things that you perceive to 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 adapt your background grid? Right? How's that working? That's what the perception is about. But again, that's not going to be the same in everybody. That's not going to work alike for everybody. Um. Yeah, um, yeah. Sarah King is interested in the, in the in the image of a grid there, which I agree. Why does he use the word grid here? Sarah asks. Does it mean the same as lens, for instance? And if so, why choose that that specific word? Uh, yeah, to you know, sort of say you know we're looking at the world through a, through a particular lens um, is a more common turn of phrase. But I think this is a different metaphor fundamentally because of that because of that difference, Sarah, that you're pointing out. Um, it, we might be tempted to just kind of equate those two things, but I think the two things are different. When you look through a lens, the idea is that which you are perceiving is altered by, by the lens you look through, right? If you're looking through a tinted lens, everything, you know, takes on that its own color is altered by the color of the lens that you're looking through, right? Um, if you're using a filtered lens, right, then you're selecting out only some of the photons get through to your eyeball compared to, uh, you know, t- to what would happen if you weren't looking through that. A grid 
is something that's imposed upon it, right? It's like the framework in a graph. Um, it's a way to... It's a, a grid in this sense. At least I, I'm taking a grid in, an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in either an actually mathematical sense or at least a quasi-mathematical sense, right? A grid is this empty thing that you impose upon that you look through through in a different way from a lens, right? A grid doesn't change what you see. I mean, it might obstruct it a, a little bit, I guess, maybe, but not if it's a mathematical grid, right? But it enables you to measure things. It enables you to map things. It enables you to, 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 to identify and to perceive and measure the relationships among things. That's what a grid does when you, when you um, see a universe through a grid. Um, and that seems to be what he's describing sort of consciousness is doing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, good, yeah. Patrick Summer says, a grid defines coordinates and sometimes even helps achieve a more precise measurement. Everything is regulated by that grid. Right, exactly. But of course what that does suggest, Patrick, right, is that the grid establishes the standards by which you measure things. Um, again, if to, to sort of over-literalize that metaphor for a second, if the measurement on your grid is inaccurate, um, your measurements are going to be wrong, right? I mean, you're not going to have an accurate perception of things. Um, so again, there's still the potential for... Uh, for, er for significant error there, um, I think. Caressa has a, a really cool observation. She says, perhaps the grid reference is a projection to set up the whole guild navigators uh, 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 thing. They're almost pure mathematics, right, through which uh, the uh, guild navigators see the world. We do get a kind of a glimpse uh, in that, right? Um, Ian asks, so the grid informs reality, sets out its boundaries and capacities, so in a double-edged manner empowers certain capacities while limiting, limiting reality only to those capacities. Yeah, and that's exactly, it's the second part of that that I see being really significant here. And what I find so interesting about the human requires a background grid, right? You've got to impose that grid in order to see the universe, right? In order to make sense of things. But I think it is limiting, right? It does impose a certain way of measuring and looking at the things around you. Um, even again, to, to, to go back to the mathematical model, right? Um, you don't. It doesn't even have to be like how accurate are the are the you know the measurements of the lines in your own grid and the relationships between the lines in your own grid, but are you using you know you know Cartesian or spherical coordinates in your grid, right? Maybe there's a really a fundamentally different way of looking at things that will show you the picture in a really new way. You know that's also. A, that's also always uh, always possible. Mike uh, Thoroway points out that divers take three quick breaths before they submerge. There is a sense of 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 diving here. I wonder, Mike, it'll be interesting to watch that to see if you know when we get this kind of talk, um, you know, this kind of of contemplation, um, uh, this kind of meditation throughout the book, if we can see a similar kind of uh, uh, sort of subliminal swimming diving uh motif that would be sort of interesting that i can't think of language which explicitly points to that but maybe i'm maybe i'm forgetting it um it seems to me kind of right somehow but uh but we'll see um 
Yeah, Gerald is asking, is the grid foreshadowing of Paul's Mentat training? Well, not purposely, of course, as uh, the uh, the Reverend Mother is, um, uh, of course, not involved with that. But um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly fits in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Amber is uh, thinking about, of course, you know, with the, the swimming in the water and the submersion and the desert planet. Yeah, Amber, this is why it seems like yeah, submersion in water. Yeah, that that kind of seems. That's got to be relevant, right? I mean, that can't just be, yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna let's 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 uh, let's keep thinking about that. Let's see if that turns out to be a thing uh, as we move forward. Now you'll notice that uh, all of you people, through your very many and very excellent uh, observations, not even the half of which I'm able to uh, to read out because you're making so many. Um, are uh, are uh, not doing me any favors in my goal to get through my slides. <laughs> so anyway, let us let us let us push on because um, I think that you know one of the things that we that we get one of the other ways in which I feel like the the Gom Jabbar and this question of the human versus the uh, versus the animal really kind of helps to to inform a bunch of the rest of what we see here. Um, and I think that we, we can notice some parallels, right? This seems to point... It seems to me non-coincidental that we're getting the Gomjabar right at the time when they're leaving for Arrakis, right? And the way in which people talk about Arrakis and Duke Leto's decision to go into Arrakis... Uh, once you know we've done the Gumjabar reminds me of you know, the high-handed enemy. It reminds me a lot about that, right? The pain box is like Arrakis. Duke Leto is going to put his hand into the box and he's going to endure the pain, right? He's not going to pull some animal trick, right? His goal is to endure the pain uh, and lie in wait for the trapper, right? To remove a threat to his kind. That would be one way of. Um, of uh, of characterizing the uh, the the strategy of the Atreides, right? In this whole transaction, um, it's really fascinating when we see the uh, the juxtaposition of the two of them, right? We get the we we get Baron Harkonnen uh, describing his plan, right? And then right after, you know, n- not right afterwards, we get the UA chapter in between, but um, uh, but almost right afterwards, we get you know uh, Duke Leto saying, this is what they're probably going to do. And he knows exactly what the plan is, right? Even down to the Sardaukar and, and her, you know, like the grand, uh, like, surprise that no one must ever know about. And he's like, yeah, they're, pro- they're totally going to bring in Sardaukar in, in uh, Harkonnen uniforms, right? They know all of this stuff, right? And uh, as Stephen Schoenwolf points out, and of course, with the earlier, with my earlier point, there's no guarantee that Leto is going to survive putting his hand in, into the trap. Right, right, exactly. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that that it, it seems that if you sort of think about this in the big picture sense, if we if we take seriously um, the Reverend Mother's description of the animal versus the human, um, I, I, Duke Leto seems to be passing the test, right? He, the Atreides in general, are showing themselves to be human. Um, well, what about what about? Uh, what about the Harkonnens? Uh, Kevin Morgan says the the, the book is tragic uh, in the Greek sense. You know, part of the pain is the foreknowing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, everybody, everybody knows, right? There's no. It's like 
everybody it, it, it's, it's not just like oh my gosh like maybe he's going to be betrayed maybe it's a trap maybe it's a trap and maybe he's going to be betrayed no we know it's a trap he knows it's a trap we know he's going to be betrayed he's going to know he's going to be betrayed um you know even the way in which baron harkonnen you know says uh uh you know the most obvious choice for our agent is going to be dr yui and he is indeed our agent but they're not going they're going to believe that the one who is the obvious agent isn't the obvious agent yeah absolutely um and of course, yes, as uh, Nate Gordon has pointed out, that the Atreides is a Greek word. Of course, yes, it's the collective word for the sons of Atreus. Uh, the uh, 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 Menelaus and Agamemnon are called the Atreides uh, in uh, in the Iliad. Um, by the way, I th- let me. I might as well make a, a little a little digression here, since uh, since those who bet the under are going to win anyway tonight. Um, I, a little digression on names. I think that Frank Herbert's naming is brilliant. I think that he does fantastic naming, but it's fascinating naming. Um, He uses names which have associations, right? Um, Sometimes he seems to use the associations, right? That is in the sense of, uh, like, for instance, with the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Vladimir, um, you know, I, I, I think... Uh, you know, this I might be incorrect about this, I, but I know my primary. You know, when I uh, hear Vladimir, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Vlad the Impaler. I have vague associations between that name and and cruelty, right? So there are ways, and w- there are sometimes when he will give someone a name which is evocative of uh, something which is, I think, relevant to that particular character. So we're sort of like supposed to recognize it. There are other times when he uses names that we do recognize and which don't, in which the associations we have for that name are kind of useless, right? For instance, Gurney, right? Uh, I know what a Gurney is. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with his character, right? Um, I'm familiar with the state Idaho, but none of the associations with the state of Idaho that I have really helped me at all um, with understanding Duncan Idaho. Um, in fact, I think what we get through the names in Dune seem to me to be far more... To use, a, uh, to use a, a very fancy word, very popular in Tolkien circles, um, there's much more, I think, of a phonoesthetic sense in the names uh, in Dune. That is the aesthetics of how they sound um, more than about what the what the words mean exactly um, um, uh, Leto Atreides both of his names, Leto and Atreides are both Greek names they're both from Greek mythology but I don't think the point of this is that we're supposed to look up the name and be thinking about Agamemnon and Menelaus. I don't think Agamemnon and Menelaus have much more to do with Leto Atreides' character than, uh, than, than the state of Idaho has to do with Duncan Idaho's character. Or like King Duncan from Macbeth has to do with Duncan Idaho's uh, character. Now, I agree with uh, what Michael is stating and what, what I think that... Um, uh, Kevin was implying before, uh, Kevin and Nate uh, were were implying before um, that you know the the Greekness of the names is sort of evocative, of, you know, of, of of epic and tragedy and stuff. Yes, generally, um, but not specifically. That is the you know they're not um, names that we are supposed to associate with particular things exactly, but. 
Um, but the name, I find the name Leto Atreides really evocative. I thought, you know, I, I found my spirit stirred by the name Atreides for years before I learned what the name Atreides was from, right? Before I read the Iliad. Um, I was I, I was very benighted and didn't read the Iliad until college. Um, but uh, but anyway, I, I but but nevertheless I always I loved the name Atreides. Um, uh, and uh, it's it's there's something in it, right? There's something in the name Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Um uh, and Fade Routha. Uh, Fade Routha just sounds slimy and evil, doesn't he? Um, I just, the, 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 the sense of that name, Piter de Vries, uh, it, it's, I, I, again, I, I find that, um, uh, there is a, uh, um, Michael asks, what does Harkonnen reference? No idea. No clue. Maybe it references something that I don't know. Nothing could be more likely. Um, but but I don't know. But again, I don't feel that I need to know. Um, I do. I don't feel even where his names are demonstrably connected uh, to real world mythologies or real world things or places. Um, it doesn't help, and it doesn't, and it doesn't need to. Again, I, I, I doesn't seem to me that the names work that way. And yet, I find the names that Herbert gives to his characters as fitting. As any names I know, I mean, they are absolutely, um, it's absolute, they're, they're just perfect. They're just perfect, the names. Um, and it's hard even to explain, it's hard for me even to articulate, to put into prose why I find the names so perfect. Um, I just, I think that his ear is really, really keen, um, and, uh, and it's, um, yeah... <laughs> Mike Thoreau says Harkonnen is a Finnish last name. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think it's an insult to the to the to the to the Finns. Um, uh, I hope no one takes it as such. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So um, let's uh, let's 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 look at the Baron a little bit. Thinking about humans and animals still. The Baron moved out and away from the globe of Arrakis. As he emerged from the shadows, his figure took on dimension, grossly and immensely fat, and with subtle bulges beneath the folds of his dark robes, to reveal that all this fat was sustained partly by portable suspensors harnessed to his flesh. He might weigh two hundred standard kilos in actuality, but his feet would carry no more than fifty of them. "'I am hungry,' the baron rumbled, and he rubbed his protruding lips with a beringed hand, stared down at Fade Routha, through fat and folded eyes. Send for food, my darling. We will eat before we retire. Um, I wish, I wish I had, I, well, I very frequently wish I had a really awesome, uh, deep, bosso James Earl Jones voice. Uh, it's one of the things that I would absolutely love to have. Um, uh, uh, my grandfather had this fantastic bass voice, and I was always sad I didn't inherit it. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen Schoenwolf says he ought to have a cat uh, he's stroking. N- no, the Baron Harkonnen strokes little boys instead. Um, 
it's quite a bit more disturbing than that, um, uh, sadly. And Sean, I, I agree. The audio Renaissance audiobook, which I uh, have been listening to, am listening to, um, has a fantastic Baron actor. I agree. I love Baron Harkonnen's voice uh, in that recording. Um, yeah, Sean, you're right. He strokes his own fat, uh, and he strokes little boys. Um, uh, t- several people are thinking of Jabba the Hutt. Um, yes, yes, I agree. Um, uh, and uh, good, Michael uh, Chiskowski has noticed the hunger, you know, I am hungry, right? Thinking of the animal motifs we discussed earlier, absolutely. I don't want to simplify this into saying, and Doug, this is what we're Doug Overmeyer was anticipating me before, um, thinking of a, a sort of a, a rough parallel, you know, with uh, with the Harkonnens and the and, and the Atreides kind of projecting onto the animal versus human dichotomy. I don't want to push that too far because it'd be easy to go way too far with that. Um, it's clear that Baron Harkonnen is a, is a is a is a reasonable. You know, he's not just like, you know a full-on animal with no contemplation and no reason and, and all sensation and no perception, that would be, um, that would be, uh, 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 far too, that, that would not be doing justice to the Baron's character. But it's hard to escape. I am hungry. Send for food, my darling. We will eat before we retire. Um, the hunger of the Baron as well as his greed, his cruelty, uh, and his pedophilia, we can't... I don't think we're really permitted to escape his pedophilia, having to listen to his um, lustful interjection, right? Whenever he talks about... You know, whenever he mentions young Paul, such a sweet body, right? We can't... Thank you, Baron. If you want to try to avoid the the, the image... Of uh, you know Baron the enormously fat Baron Harkonnen, um, uh, uh, sexually molesting young boys, the narrator will not oblige you <laughs> in that, right? Um, we uh, that's um, that's central to who he is. Um, the way in which he subjects others. You know, not only does he him does he himself sort of serve his own desires and want others to serve his desires. The way that he subjugates other people to his own desires, right? The way that he seeks to sort of enslave others. Um, you know, where he talks about how he controls. You know, it is it is it is through through Peter De Vries's pleasures that the Baron controls him, right? Um, this is. Um, uh, Again, this is this is really a central part uh, of his character, and I think that his um, uh, his his pedophilia, his pedophilia is a, just a, a really visceral, uh, viscerally disturbing expression of that. Right? Um, yeah, Mike says. Do, Mike Thurway says, "Does mind control body, or vice versa?" Um, with the Baron again, there's 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 that line, right? He he seems to be in control of himself. He talks about, you know, it, he 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 chides Fade Rautha for not being able to control his uh, himself, right? You seek to rule my empire, but you cannot rule yourself. Um, and yet, 
you know, there's this there's this other side of him as well. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, it's um, uh, I, I I find that you know his his character in this way is it's it's way over simplistic to say he's just an animal. But again, um, you know, when we contrast him with the Atreides, it's it's very different. Um, uh, yeah. Um, G H is how you sign yourself. G H Chinoy. I don't know. Kaya G H. I guess. Um, uh, it says while the Baron understands uh, desires and motivations of people, he's more animal than human. Yet he does premeditate. He does manipulate. He's a fantastic manipulator, right? But um, uh, he is. Uh, he's. He is more animal than human. Does still seem to be. Seem to be fair. Um, and Chris asks then. What do we think of Beast Raban? Yeah, I'm gonna go with Animal on that one, Chris. I just just kind of gonna gonna go out on a limb and say that Beast Raban, his other nephew, is uh, a little bit on the animal side. Just something, just kind of suggests that. Uh, but Chris, I agree, Beast Raban. What a great name! I, I, I just they're all great. I just I I maybe there are some names that don't work perfectly in this book, but boy, ah, you know. They're fantastic. Um, uh, but anyway, we haven't gotten to the Beast Raban yet, so I, w- I won't spend too much time there. But yeah, on the uh, Harkonnens as animals uh, front, uh, I think we can see that. And by the way, of course, did you... See, I think... Uh, um, you're going you're gonna, to uh, laugh at me when I tell you this. I've read this book, I don't know how many times, at least a dozen times before. And... I think that my mind shuddered back from the implications of that last sentence every single time I only noticed it preparing for class tonight. Send for food, my darling. We will eat before we retire. Um, I always knew that the Baron was a pedophile. Um, I, and, you know, and he calls Fadrath my darling and everything, but I think I had never allowed myself to go there um, and, and, uh, and to understand that the Baron is actually also sexually molesting his nephew and heir. But that seems inescapable when you actually look at it. Um, again, this is uh, um, this is how Baron Harkonnen operates. The Atreides, of course, are very different. And we see this illustrated most pointedly, I think, here uh, in talking about the Fremen on Arrakis. Don't the Harkonnens know about the Fremen? This is Paul, of course, talking to his dad. The Harkonnens sneered at the Fremen, hunted them for sport, never even bothered trying to count them. We know the Harkonnen policy with planetary populations. Spend as little as possible to maintain them. The metallic threads in the hawk symbol above his father's breast glistened as the Duke shifted his position. You see? Now we get that reminder, that difference. He's an Atreides, right? It doesn't even have to spell out doesn't even have to say anything about how the Atreides perspective is different, right? We just describe the Harkonnen point of view and then see light shining off the metallic threads and the hawk symbol on his father's breast. We're negotiating with the Fremen right now, Paul said. I sent a mission headed by Duncan Idaho, the, the Duke said. A proud and ruthless man, Duncan, but fond of the truth. I think the Fremen will admire him. If we're lucky, they may judge us by him, Duncan the Moral. Duncan the Moral, Paul said, and Gurney the Valorous. These are the Atreides guys, 
right? This is what the Atreides are about. Not only moral and valorous as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, um, evil, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, um, but again, this, this sort of the, the attitude towards the Fremen, um, it shows both the strength of the Atreides, right? Um, it's not just that the Atreides tend to treat people first as people and not as tools, not as instruments of their own desires, um, but they also, um, as a result, are able to, to perceive instead of merely sensing, right? Um, they're able to act in a more human way. They're able to, to, to be conscious of things. In a way, the, the Harkonnens are unconscious of the Fremen. They fail to perceive the Fremen and what the Fremen could be. Here, you know, the Atreides have recognized that in the Fremen there is the potential for them to build a, a military force which would be able to defeat anything in the universe, which would be better even than the Emperor and his Sardaukar. And here they've been living under the noses of the Harkonnens for 20 years, and the Harkonnens not only didn't ever see it, but they wouldn't ever see it. They can't ever see it. Um, because of who they are, because of, uh, because of how they act. Um, whereas the Atreides are open to these things. Again, it's human uh, in, rather, than, rather than animal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, was it 80 years, Brian? I might, I, I might have gotten... Yeah, <clears throat> I probably got that wrong. I thought it was 20. No. I believe you. Um, yeah, okay, it is 80. Okay, so they ruled... They ruled. Uh, so there you go. And it could have been 800, and they would still never notice it. Um, oh, they've been stockpiling tw- spice for 20. I knew, see, I knew I didn't make up the 20 out of nowhere. I was remembering that from something. Um, yeah, exactly, No, It's because of the Harkonnens grid, right? This is the grid through which the Harkonnens look at the world, and they're incapable of perceiving the Fremen. Um, Jesse, an excellent... Reminder: Jesse Tumblin says, but let's keep in mind that insofar as the Atreides value the Fremen, they're still instrumentalizing them. Yes, they still see them as an instrument, as a tool. Absolutely. Um, that's certainly how they're talking about them, right? They can, uh, they can, they can use the Fremen, right? The f- though, to give them credit, the Fremen can be valuable allies, is how they are talking about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so did the Bene Gesserit, says Brian Fatterini. Yeah, yeah, get into that. Um, uh, one little side note on which I will not spend very much time, um, but we can see, again, it's, as far as this question of human and animal, um, this passage really jumped out at me when I was looking at this. Um, Paul's talking about going in the... Uh, you know, in the ship to Arrakis the next day. I'm going to watch our screens and try to see a guildsman. You won't. Not even their agents ever see a guildsman. The guild's as jealous of its privacy as it is of its monopoly. Don't do anything to endanger our shipping privileges, Paul. Do you think they hide because they've mutated and don't look human anymore? Um, Yeah, maybe the Spacing Guild have moved beyond human in some sense. Maybe they're not human anymore. Doug Overmeyer says, I really hate every movie attempt at showing them. Um, yeah, 
me too. Um, and we'll talk about that. By the way, a couple people have already noticed that I have not scheduled any time in our class schedule to discuss the film version of Dune. A couple reasons for this. Um, whereas I did this before, you know, we, 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 we did this with Ender's Game, you know, we looked at the, adapta- the, the film adaptation, and, you know, many of you know from my Tolkien stuff that I'm really interested in film adaptations, and the, the question of adapting a book for screen, I think, is a really fascinating interpretive process, and really generates a lot of really, really interesting thoughts and questions. Um, so I really like thinking about that and talking about that. Um, the reason I didn't schedule a class for the Dune movie, for a couple reasons, one, the Dune class is already really long, I couldn't schedule fewer than 12 classes and really um, you know, be able to talk about this book in the kind of detail that I would really love to, um, and I didn't want to make tag on an extra week for it. Um, and also, the film version is awful. It's really very bad. Um, uh, and um, uh, we can still talk about it. I'm open to it. If you guys are really keen to do a discussion of the film, um, I'd be happy to do that you know we could squeeze that in maybe do a bonus session or something i'd be i'd be fine with that if there's really a clamoring for that but uh yeah and amber i agree well it's funny (laughs) simultaneously uh carissa said the sci-fi miniseries was worse and uh uh, amber says the miniseries was better i generally kind of like the miniseries better but i only saw it once and it was a long time ago I saw it when it was when it was on, um, and haven't seen it since. And I don't have it. It's 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 hard to get. Um, I, mean, I guess it's available on Amazon. But it's really expensive, um, and it's not on. Uh, I've never found it on you know on Netflix or anything else. Um, but um, anyway, it's. Um, um, I I I I found the film adaptation sufficiently uninteresting <laughs> that I wasn't like really going out of my way uh, to uh, to to include it. But again, we could. Uh, bad movies are interesting to talk about too in their own ways. You know, they still raise interesting questions. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. We can, you know, Sarah King says I'd be interested to hear. She'd be interested to hear my thoughts about what makes a film adaptation bad, if nothing else. Yeah, you know, hey, why not? Let's go through and 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 think about what exactly. You know, um, <laughs> I think of that. C.S. Lewis phrase. Wherein does its badness consist? Um, yeah, by all means. Let's talk about that. Later. Later. Not going to worry about it right now. Um, okay. Uh, but anyway, so just to hear this question is interesting. We're not going to get much on the guildsmen right away. This is going to be a question that kind of lurks in the background. Who are the guildmen? What's up with them? Are they, you know, are they, uh, are they human? Um, you know, have they become something else? Um, if so, what and what does that mean? What you know? Do they, are they outside entirely? That uh, you know the the question of hu- you know humanity versus uh, animality. Um, I just wanted to draw our attention to this, and then we'll sort of leave it aside. Um, but uh, but sort of remember this question that has been raised here at the beginning. Um, when we'll get back to it, uh, we'll get back to it later. Um, <laughs> Liza Gold says the film version is no worse than the uh, the the uh, the the, the Bakshi and Rankin Bass versions of the Lord of the Rings. Well, Liza, perhaps I'm not sure that's a commendation. I I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I can. I, I'm 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 willing. I'm willing. You know, we we can talk about it later. Um, 
Uh, okay, anyway, um, I want to look at a couple other characters, I think, and when we look at a few of the characters that we get introduced to, um, and I'm really interested in how Herbert invites us to see those characters. Again, thinking of the way, um, you know, the observation, I'm forgetting now, who made this observation originally about the way the point of view shifts around, um, the narrative point of view shifts around, and we, we sort of suddenly see into somebody's mind these kind of glimpses that were given. Um, uh, um, anyway, so that's um, that's th- that's all really um, it's all really fascinating. These glimpses that we get. Um, how are we invited to see these characters uh, when we get them? Brian, that was you. Good. Um, um, Look at Gurney Halleck. Here's Halleck. He's just finished his fight with Paul, right? His training bout with Paul. <clears throat> and now he's working the training dummy while, uh, while uh, it's fencing against Paul. Halleck watched as he manipulated the controls. His mind seemed to be in two parts, one alert to the needs of the training fight and the other wandering in fly buzz. I'm the well-trained fruit tree, he thought, full of well-trained feelings and abilities and all of them grafted onto me, all bearing for someone else to pick. For some reason, he recalled his younger sister, her elfin face so clear in his mind. But she was dead now, in a pleasure house for Harkonnen troops. She had loved pansies. Or was it daisies? He couldn't remember. It bothered him that he couldn't remember. Um... What do you notice? What do we see? We see the division in his mind, right? Um, he's thinking of him. He's manipulating a target dummy, and how with half of his mind, and the other half of his mind is sort of thinking of himself. He's only semi-conscious of this, right? He certainly hasn't achieved that sort of state of meta-consciousness, right? That we saw through the Bene Gesserit lessons. Um, he's like half-conscious um, of himself. And this, this image sort of floats through that half of his mind, that image of himself as a well-trained fruit tree. He's not even an animal, he's a tree, right? Um, all of these things, the feelings and abilities have been grafted onto them, right? All bearing for someone else to pick. He's a tool. He's an instrument. The other half of his mind is manipulating a target dummy, right? He's like a training tool. Um, and, you know, the, the, the way in which that we seem to be invited to sort of identify him with the target dummy here, um, you know, at the same time that he's thinking of himself as a tree. Obviously, tree, slightly more... Um, uh, slightly more profitable way to think of himself right a slightly more flattering way than 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 as than as uh, as as a target dummy um but still there's a similar kind of function there right um he is helping to bring forth fruit out of paul he himself has had fruit brought forth out of him grafted onto him right training uh, you know well-trained feelings and abilities grafted onto him but then his mind wanders to his sister right so we get this other image now Right, we get the image of the the fruit tree, and then we get the image of the elfin face of his younger sister, dead in a pleasure house for Harkonnen troops. His sister, who was made into a sex slave for Harkonnen soldiers, and presumably raped to death by Harkonnen troops, um, in a, in a pleasure house. Um, and there's obviously 
you know, we, we, the, 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 the recollection of his sister brings up these images of, of terrible victimization, terrible dehumanization, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to be a, a, a tree, right, that's had things grafted onto it, to be bearing fruit for someone else to pick. But there's a, there's a wide gap between being a fruit tree with whose fruit someone else picks and being a, a dead sex slave, right? Um, uh, the contrast, you know, the sharp contrast between the tree bringing forth fruit and, the, you know, the, 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 and the, again, this is a, it's like it's like an Atreides and Harkonnen thing here. This is kind of about Gurney, but it's kind of not about Gurney. It's kind of, you know, we're sort of, we're learning about him, but we're also, um, we're also learning more about the particular nature of the difference between the, 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 the Harkonnens and the Atreides. Again, it's one thing to say, the Atreides are good and the Harkonnens are evil. Yeah, Kevin Morgan is saying, it's almost like the Harkonnens aren't nice guys. Yeah, you, you do almost get that impression, right? Um, um, yeah, so, but, but again, notice the similarities, right? As Patrick Summers and as Roy and Corey are both saying, there's a similar, there is a similarity there, right? Both houses are using people but in very different ways. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, Tom Hillman points out these things are not natural to him. Um, notice that there is that implication as well, right? That that he's... These things are grafted onto him. Um, the well-trained feelings and the well-trained abilities are things that have been given to him, right? He has been cultivated. He has been cultured by the Atreides. Um he's bearing fruit for other people to pick but these are also in a sense gifts that have been given to him um, as well um, yeah yeah um, yeah um, now we will learn more about Gurney's own history um, but uh, and, and his background I think and it's going to be an important thing as we move forward but um uh, sorry, I won't, I won't talk about it too much now. You know, it was wait till we get to that later on. Um, but it'd be interesting to watch again. This is why I think we do learn stuff about Gurney Halleck here. Um, but even more, I think this really spotlights the uh, the Atreides um, and the Harkonnen here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look at Thufar Hawat. Uh, he's you know chiding Paul for sitting with his back to a door, and uh, uh, Paul is saying that he would know the difference between Thufir approaching and other people approaching. I'd know the difference, says Paul. He might at that, Hawat thought. That witch mother of his is giving him the deep training, certainly. I wonder what her precious school thinks of that. Maybe that's why they sent the old proctor here, to whip our dear lady Jessica into line. Hawat pulled up a chair across from Paul, sat down facing the door. He did it pointedly, leaned back, and studied the room. It struck him as an odd place suddenly, a stranger place, with most of its hardware already gone off to Arrakis. A training table remained, and a fencing mirror with its crystal prisms quiescent, the target dummy beside it patched and padded, looking like an ancient foot-soldier maimed and battered in the wars. There stand I, Hawat thought. Thufra, what are you thinking? Paul asked. Hawat looked at the boy. I was thinking we'll all be out of here soon and likely never see the place again. Does that make you sad? Okay. Um, Sean says he's always been a bit surprised at the venom 
that Hawat has for Jessica, um, even before the plot to frame her, which of course has already been revealed to us as almost no secrets are kept in this book. Um, yeah, the re- the reference to the witch mother—it's like the first thing we get out of Thufir Hawat, right? Is that witch mother of his? His animosity for Jessica is one of the very, very first things that we learn about him. Certainly, one of the first things we see from him directly. Um, he seems to have some unresolved issues here, you know, sort of an unhealthy fixation, perhaps. Um, but it's clear, you know, looking at it in sort of a simple way, um, it's uh, it's clear that they're not quite opposites, but they're two different sort of uh, offshoots of two different offshoots of humanity. Right, you know, you've got the humans and you've got the animals. Right, those who those who who sort of have the mind ruling the body are humans, and those whose body rules their minds are animals. It's a really crude summation of many of the things that we've talked about, but certainly one of the things that we can see going on. Um, the Mentats and the Bene Gesserit are two of the three highest um, highest level versions of that hum- of that humanity that we've seen. Right. The third being the Spacing Guild, which we don't see and nobody ever sees. But um, um, but the Mentats and the Bene Gesserit both are um, are all about the mind ruling, right? But there's an implication. Either one of them looks at the other. Or rather, I think almost we're invited to see each one of them, um, at times at least, as almost subhuman. Um, he calls her a witch, Right? As if you know, again, she's. Uh, um, he doesn't seem to. See, he he doesn't seem to see her as simply human herself, right? She's something else. She's a witch. Um, and uh, uh, he is. He's a thinking machine, right? Remember that business about impairing efficiency, right? Um, you know, in order for him to to work, and you know, they're in order for the, for. For the Mentat to be able to do his, you know, I'm better than a computer thing, um, uh, he needs to have his his efficiency unimpaired by emotions, right? Um, there's a way in which Mentats are supposed to be the perfect perceivers, not just sensors, but perceivers, right? Um, and that they're supposed to be just all about taking in data and processing the data and being able to produce conclusions. Again, in the terms given to us by the Reverend Mother at the beginning, the the Mentats are like the ultimate humans, right? In a, in one sense, or at least they seem like it. The Bene Gesserits also, with the lessons that we hear Paul reciting, sound like, you know, again, a very exaggerated version of that of that kind of humanity. And yet there's there's limitations, there's weaknesses, I think, on both sides. Notice what how he identifies himself very plainly here in this passage. Right, um, he's uh, he's he identifies himself with the target dummy, that same target dummy that that Gurney Halleck is going to be manipulating a little bit from now. Right, uh, Nancy Fosberg says it seems like human machine might be as important a distinction as human animal. Um, yeah, perhaps um, uh, it doesn't come up as clearly; those terms aren't used as much. Um, but certainly, we're invited to to, to sort of and compare those two things invited through the uh, the sort of the description of the of the mentats and the you know the the butlerian jihad I love that phrase the butlerian jihad um, 
uh, I don't know why. Again, there's so many of the names that just I I um I don't know. But anyway, um yeah, yeah. Um a quick question before I leave this passage behind. Um Paul says, Does that make you sad? Paul, in case you know you haven't noticed, is an observing kind of lad. Um when he asks a question which appears to the person he is asking it to to be irrelevant or a you know a non sequitur, a change of topic, it rarely is. Um, if we go back and look, we can generally find sometimes it doesn't make sense until you're rereading the book the second or third or fourth time. But um, but rarely are Paul's non sequiturs pure non sequiturs. If Paul says, "Does that make you sad?" The implication there, I think, is that he is perceiving sadness in Thufir Hawat. Um, notice that Thufir lies to him. Thufir, what are you thinking? Paul asks. I was thinking, well, I'll be out of here soon and likely never see the place again. That's not what he was thinking. So when Paul asks him, does that make you sad? Um, again, I think Thufir is sad about something. What is he sad about? Um... He never answers the question because he doesn't tell Paul the truth about what he's thinking. What he's thinking is, there stand I. He's looking at the target dummy and identifying himself in some sense with the target dummy. Um, and, uh, um, and you're right, Noel. Um, the Hawat's own thought implies sadness. There stand I, patched, maimed, and battered in the wars, right? <clears throat> Certainly, the fact that he has been patched, maimed, and you know, the, uh, uh, you know, patched and padded, maimed and battered, um, there stand I, yeah, but there stand I, a machine, a training machine, right, a machine whose function is to train Paul, right, um, and to just stand at attention when not doing that. Again, this, it's. It's not just any machine, right, that he's comparing himself to. Um, and he's not just any person comparing himself to a machine. He's a mentat, right, who is supposed to be a substitute for a machine, um, to be more than a machine, but yet. Um, uh, yeah, Trevor asks, is he questioning his role as servant? <sighs> what I would ask is, is he questioning his purpose? That's a bigger question. Um, <clears throat> we'll see. We'll see. Let's keep thinking about that. Of course, at the beginning of in talking about books, very rarely answer a whole lot of questions. There's just a lot of things to draw our attention to and to keep an, keep our eye on as we go as we move our way through the book. But let's talk about purpose. Um, uh, we've not got um, that much. Um, Oh, wait, though, let me... Joey uh, Willett asks a great question. Why are Mentats often assassins? Both of the Mentats that we met are primarily assassins and torturers. That's how their job descriptions run. Um, um, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, and again, it seems relevant to the question. You know, how are they described? How are they identified? What are the, what are their job descriptions? Seem to me to be related to that question I was asking. What is what is his purpose? What is his um, 
what is his purpose? And of course, say, well, yeah, let's get back. Let's let's talk about Paul's terrible purpose. But before we get to the actual terrible purpose, I want to transition to that with a fascinating passage when Juana's favorite passage emerges from the Orange Catholic Bible that uh, Yui gives to Paul. Read it aloud, Yui said. Paul wet his lips with his tongue, read, Think you of the fact that a deaf person cannot hear. Then, what deafness may we not all possess? What senses do we lack that we cannot see and cannot hear another world all around us? What is there around us that we cannot... Stop it! Yui barked. Paul broke off, stared at him. Yui closed his eyes, fought to regain composure. What perversity caused the book to open at my Juana's favorite passage? He opened his eyes, saw Paul staring at him. Is something wrong? Paul asked. Um, yeah, good. Nancy's pointing out. This is the grid again. We can only perceive what we can fit into our grid. Yes, even if we sense things that do not fit into our grid, we will not truly perceive them. Um, uh, there's... Uh, you know, sort of two things that I see quickly in this passage. One is, again, I think of that distinction, you know, Nancy, that you were pointing out between, or that you were reminding us of, between sense and perception. Um, This passage almost invites a third thing, right? There's sense, there's perception, and then there's something else, something that goes beyond senses, right? That sense and perception still both have to do, in a, I was about to say in a sense, uh, with, with, with you know, it's the sensory impulse that comes in, the sensory impulse which is fit within the which is fit fit into our grid, right? That's what separates a a sense from a perception. But what if there's something else out there? What if we lack senses uh, that enable us not to see and not to hear another world that's all around us? What if there's something else out there to be perceived? that we just can't perceive, that we can neither sense nor perceive. Um, what if there's something else? Um, and uh, um, that is, I think this is one of the things, um, it's, it's a really fascinating way in which this possibility is opened to us here. Right, you know, we have Paul becoming he's going to be becoming aware of things that other people cannot see, right? This is uh this question of his terrible purpose and those thing you know, the things that he can perceive and the things that he can foresee. Um and this passage seems to you know, accidentally to kind of point us to this because this wasn't the passage he was supposed to be reading. Um, why is Yui so upset about it? Well, you know, several levels, right? Memories of his wife. This is his wife's favorite passage, and it's very painful for him to hear this and all the memories that it brings back to him of his wife. He doubtless can hear in his own, you know, mind his wife's voice reading this passage. And so not only is that painful, but even the way in which that interacts with the substance of this, what senses do we lack that we cannot see and cannot hear another world around us, right? Where is his wife, right? It's like, again, he's... He, he, it's almost like he can hear her voice, but he can't, right? So again, this is very painful. Um, the sense in which it's pointing to, you know, us, you know, that, that Yui's reaction and how suspicious his reaction is, and Paul being like, what's wrong with you? We know that he is a traitor. We know what he is concealing, this idea that there is something else that, you know, 
can't be perceived, right? Again, it, it seems to be connected on the one hand very simply with that uh, sort of plot piece, but I think there's also the way it's connected with Paul's own destiny. I love the fact that this this you know this first glimpse of this thing that is out there that can be perceived that is beyond the normal senses, uh, and the first thing we get is Yui saying, "Stop it! Stop it!" Right? Um, and that's going to be. Paul's own sense of his own destiny. Stop it! Stop it! Uh, we'll come back to that. Um, um, but anyway, Paul's terrible purpose. Paul looked at his mother. She told the truth. He wanted to get away alone and think this experience through, but knew he could not leave until he was dismissed. The old woman had gained a power over him. They spoke truth. His mother had undergone this test. There must be terrible purpose in it. The pain and fear had been terrible. He understood terrible purposes. They drove against all odds. They were their own necessity. Paul felt that he had been infected with terrible purpose. He did not, he did not know yet what the terrible purpose was. Now, here we have um, Paul first trying to process this idea, right? Notice how the narrator kind of seizes on the phrase, there must be terrible purpose in it, right? Um, There must be a purpose in it, and that purpose must be terrible. But then we see the way that, again, in as much as this paragraph is following Paul's own thoughts, his own thoughts seem to kind of latch onto that phrase. The pain and fear had been terrible. It's like, so, so I guess you could call it a I mean, there seems to be a purpose, and it seems to be a terrible purpose in that it's fearful and painful. Um, he understood terrible purposes, right? Well, come to think of it, yeah, I know about terrible purposes. Terrible purposes that drive against all odds, that are their own necessity. But then, notice it's not like, yeah, come to think of it, I have a terrible purpose too. No, he feels like he has been infected with terrible purpose. That, that, that this necessity, but it's entering from outside him, right? It's, it is something, that that image of infection, right? Um, it has come into him. This terrible purpose has come into him, um, and he clearly sees it as a bad thing. It's, it's an infection, right? Um, he's not been inspired with terrible purpose. He's been infected with terrible purpose, but he doesn't yet know what the terrible purpose is. Um... And, of course, we don't yet know. Uh, Brandon Young says it reminds me of how Tolkien uses the word doom. Um, yes, there is a doom upon him. Yeah, I think that... Um, I, I bet that if uh, if Paul Atreides were to meet Melian, she would perceive that a great doom lay upon him. Uh, that that seems to me pretty fair. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good, excellent. Uh, Roy Ancori uh, has a style time observation. Roy says there are two, there are only two longish sentences. The rest are terse. Those sentences are about what Paul feels or wants. The short the short sentences are about drier information. Um, yeah, you're right. Notice the style of that, right? The, how how sort of clipped this is. Paul looked at his mother. She spoke the truth. Um, And then you're right. He wanted to get away alone and think this experience through, but knew he could not leave until he was dismissed. The old woman had gained a power over him. They spoke truth. Um, I agree. The cadence of this paragraph is really interesting. We can see him like he's trying to break it down, right? Um, There must be terrible purpose in it. 
The pain and fear had been terrible. He understood terrible purposes. They drove against all odds. Um, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Nancy says that Paul wouldn't listen to Melian either. Yeah, probably not. Um, <laughs> probably not. Um, well, so, okay, so what is this purpose? What do we get, how do we, what do we have so far? in these first few chapters, um, in knowing how to understand this terrible purpose. Well, we see other purposes, right? We see people with purposes. Um, the Bene Gesserits have a purpose, right? Here's uh, the, the, the Reverend Mother and uh, Jessica talking about purposes. Um, I ask only what you see in the future with your superior abilities, says Jessica, not without a hint of, you know, sarcasm, I think. But anyway, I see in the future what I've seen in the past. You well know the pattern of our affairs, Jessica. The race knows its own mortality and fears stagnation of its heredity. It's in the bloodstream, the urge to mingle genetic strains without plan. The Imperium, the Chome Company, all the great houses, they are but bits of flotsam in the path of the flood. This is truth as Bene Gesserits perceive it, right? There's this sense of purpose in the human race, right? It's about breeding. The race knows its own mortality and fears stagnation of its heredity. This deep purpose in the bloodstream of humans to mingle genetic strains without plan, right? The Bene Gesserits are, have to work against that impulse. Chom, Jessica muttered, I suppose it's already decided how they'll redivide the spoils of Arrakis. What is Chome but the weather vane of our times, the old woman said. The emperor and his friends now command 59.65% of the Chome directorship's votes. Certainly they smell profits, and likely as others and likely as others smell those same profits, his voting strength will increase. That is the pattern of history, girl. Um Yeah. Um Good. Mike Thurway says here's the Bene Gesserit grid. Yes. We are we are seeing the Bene Gesserit grid. Um, notice this started with, I only ask what you see in the future with your superior abilities, right? She's a reverend mother. She can see that she has access to knowledge um, that others don't have. What is her knowledge about the future? I see in the future what I've seen in the past, right? We know how to understand this. We have a grid for that, right? We know how these things work. Um, and I see this, you know, all of these things, <clears throat> I can look at the big picture. The Imperium, the Chome Company, the Great Houses, all the most important things in our universe, they're but bits of flotsam in the path of the flood, right? I can perceive the flood, because I've got the grid. I've got the Bene Gesserit grid. That shows me what's really going on. Um, okay, okay, they recognize the patterns of events, they understand how people will respond, not just individual people, but the whole pattern of things, right? That is the pattern of history. By the pattern of history, it is how people will act under certain circumstances, right? Um, the big picture. They get all this stuff. Um, I said how people will respond. Kind of animal responses, right? Humans are almost outside of their calculation, and yet there's an irony there. Um, here's her description to Paul. We have two chief survivors of those ancient schools. There's the ancient schools to train human minds that grew up after the Butlerian Jihad when the, uh, the computers were all destroyed. 
We have two chief survivors of those ancient schools, the Bene Gesserit and the Spacing Guild. The Guild, so we think, emphasizes almost pure mathematics. The Bene Gesserit performs another function. Politics, he said. Kulwahad, the old woman said. She sent a hard glance at Jessica. I've not told him, your reverence, Jessica said. The Reverend Mother returned her attention to Paul. You did that on remarkably few few clues, she said. Politics, indeed. The original Bene Gesserit school was directed by those who saw the need of a thread of continuity in human affairs. They saw that there could be no such continuity without separating human stock from animal stock, for breeding purposes. The old woman's words abruptly lost their special sharpness for Paul. He felt an offense against what his mother called his instinct for rightness. It wasn't that Reverend Mother lied to him. She obviously believed what she said. It was something deeper, something tied to his terrible purpose. Okay, so of course the Bene Gesserit reveal here that they not only have a grid through which they can make sense of history and the patterns of history and how people will act, but that they have a purpose towards which they are driving, right? They are developing a strain of continu- a thread of continuity in human affairs. Um, they are plotting a line on their grid, right? And they are working to conform uh, events to the pattern that they um, are desiring to form. Um, Notice their breeding plans. First they identify humans, and then they breed them together. Uh, like animals, yeah, Nancy Fosberg says, uh, don't their eugenicist aims at least somewhat discredit the human-animal thing? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, exactly. Um, I think it does. The way that they set out to manipulate, to I first identify humans and then manipulate them um, as if they were animals and breed them together. Um, uh, it's... Um, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, there's clearly, again, at the very least, irony here. Um, is it, um, um, is it clear that the irony is an actual contradiction? You know, that they're undermining themselves or, you know, sort of, you know, uh, contradicting themselves? Not necessarily, um, but I think the irony points to um, a kind of a weakness in their purpose, right? That is, they they tr- they identify the difference between humans and animals as those who will those who will think, those who will act, those whose minds rule over their bodies, those who are willing to sacrifice for the whole, to do things which are not according to their own personal best interest, right? Not just self-serving, not just self-pleasing. Um, and yet, they act as if they believe they can bring those individuals together as kind of passive objects through which to build something else. Um, and uh, it does seem, Sharon, yeah, close to a contradiction of terms. Oh, and Sharon Powell, I never got back to giving you credit. What, of course, Sharon Powell was anticipating <clears throat> way back near the very beginning of our discussion was that parallel between, uh, uh, between Arrakis and the pain box, how, uh, how the, uh, the, the, the entering of Arrakis by Duke Leto um, was like the, uh, the Gomtubar. Sharon, I forgot to 
give you a shout out when we got back to that part of the class. Um, anyway, um, notice there is a lie. Part of the Bene Gesserit plan purpose is not true. Um, Note that Paul's truth sense goes beyond hers. She's the Reverend Mother, right? She's the one with insight. She's a truth sayer. She uh, she's surprised to find that he can perceive truth like she can, right? But notice how she characterizes it when she when she when she sees that you know when he says you speak the truth. She says, "Oh, you you can tell when people believe what they say, right?" He can tell when people believe what they say. That's evident here, right? Um, it wasn't that the Reverend Mother lied to him. She obviously believed what she said. He can perceive that. But he can perceive more than that. He can perceive more than whether or not a person is consciously lying, which is apparently what she can perceive. His perception goes deeper, again, to use this word, that you know he has this instinct for rightness, this sense of that thing that you said isn't true. A kind of perception of the grid, that there is an external grid, there is an absolute grid, right? Um, And it's that sense of, no, your grid is off. That's not right. That doesn't actually measure up um, to reality. That's not the grid that fits reality. Um, That seems to be, that's how I take that instinct for rightness, that he's describing, and I think of Juana's favorite passage in the Orange Catholic Bible as well, um, about that that other world that's around us, which most, you know, maybe there's this other world that we can't sense or perceive. Um, and Paul seems to have sort of a sense of that. Um, yeah, Tom says it's the grid of the Kwisatz Haderach, Exactly. Yes, I think so. Um, we are way out of time. But we might as well talk about the Quisouts Hot Rock briefly, uh, and we might pick this up again at the beginning of class next time. Paul felt himself coming more and more out of the shock of the test. He leveled a measuring stare at her, said, You say maybe I'm the Quisouts Hot Rock. What's that, a human gomjabar? Paul. Jessica said. You mustn't take that tone with I'll handle this, Jessica, the old woman said. Now, lad, do you know about the truth-sayer drug? Notice how she didn't answer his question. You take it to improve your ability to detect falsehood, he said. My mother's told me. Have you ever seen truth trance? He shook his head. No. The drug's dangerous, she said, but it gives insight. When a truth-sayer is gifted by the drug, she can look many places in her memory, in her body's memory. We looked down so many avenues of the past, but only feminine avenues. Her voice took a note of sadness, took on a note of sadness. Yet there's a place where no truthsayer can see. We are repelled by it, terrorized. It is said a man will come one day and find in the gift of the drug his inward eye. He will look where we cannot, into both feminine and masculine pasts. Your Kwisatz Haderach? Yes, the one who can be many places at once, the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, yeah um, I love his characterization what is the Kwisatz Haderach a human gomjabar um, yeah actually uh, I, I, I think that's 
that just seems to me um, a fascinating thought question, right? Um, so let me leave you with that. Over this next week, contemplate that question. Is the Kwisatz Haderach like a human Gomjabar? And if so, how? Discuss. Uh, we'll think about that. And of course, we will um, um, We will be uh, thinking more about the Kwisatz Haderach as we move forward, of course. Um, we're a ways away from, uh, uh, from really bearing the final fruit on that particular question, but... Um, um, but we'll see. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me uh, today. Um, this was a long class. I fear that's probably going to be the way of it. Uh, I find Dune not only uh, you know, a massive and fascinating book, there's so many other things we could have talked about that we, we didn't get to talk about. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, there's still... Um, nevertheless, I still barely... Um, Get got uh, <laughs> got got through what I wanted to talk about here. Um, so, but thanks very much for joining me. Next time we will uh, we will read through uh, Paul's uh, Paul's arrival at Arrakis and looking at the you know the ways in which um, you know sort of the things that 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 arise in those early days as we begin to see you know the the predestined. Uh, you know, plans coming to fruition and, and looking at the ways in which his terrible, this concept of his terrible purpose is growing and all that stuff. Um, I just wanted to remind you, um, the, the books, of course, are very annoying. Frank Herbert is one of those authors who was not foresighted in recognizing that the book that he was in the middle of writing was soon going to become a classic and that one day people were going to teach classes on his books and would want to give reading assignments on his books and that it would be very, very, very helpful for him to number the chapters of his book so that teachers could assign them. But he didn't. Uh, and so it's very hard to tell you exactly with lots of different editions, both paper and electronic. Um, so you are supposed to stop when you get to the epigram, which begins on that first day when Wadib rode through um, the little epigram that's talking about people calling him Mahdi uh, as he walks through the town. If you get to that epigram, stop. That's, that's where we're ending. Um, so... Uh, um, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, for, uh, for joining me. That's the passage we're going to talk about next time, and I will see you guys next week. Good night now.